From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Janet, do you like to get things for free? Well, of course, who doesn't? But knowing this is an MGI podcast where we talk about economics, I'm sure you're going to tell me that nothing is truly without cost. So there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, you're right, of course. One of the things we cover with today's guest is the fact the Earth's ecosystems provide all kinds of services to us, like sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, which we mostly don't pay for. But what if you could actually create markets for these services? That's a fascinating idea. I can't wait to hear about it. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Let's start at the beginning. How'd you end up doing what you're doing today? Where'd you grow up? What did you study? Where has your career taken you? So I, I was born in the UK. I was actually born in the uh, the coal fields, in the decline of the coal fields up in the, the north of England, but have lived and worked around the world, but studied in the UK and studied in the US and have always been interested in this interface between the environment and business. Grew up with a very entrepreneurial father who believed that business was the sort of the the, the, the career, the solution that, that that sort of we needed to sort of drive more economic opportunity, but also to be able to sort of find solutions to some of the the, the challenges that, uh, that that society is facing. And that 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 interface between the environment and business has really been the thread that has run throughout my career. And in particular, um, in the early '90s, when I was studying, then uh, the, the 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 growing threat of climate change became clearer and clearer. And so that that's been a topic that has been central to many of my uh, career choices uh, over those years. I, I had an opportunity with a consultancy called Arthur D. Little taking their technology that was in renewable energy and energy storage and fuel cells back in the uh, mid-late 90s and bringing that to the European energy clients, the big oil and gas majors and big utilities in Europe that were innovating there. So I had a chance to be involved in that very early on. I then transitioned to BP to really be part of their team building alternative energy, as it was the largest renewable energy business globally. It was an $8 billion commitment that we made in 2005. And uh, I was given the opportunity to set up and launch BP Ventures, which continues to be a key part of how BP is innovating in, uh, in the broader energy transition. As we were doing that work and we made some investments in that space, it became clear that this interface between the food sector, the land sector and the climate sector was a really important area of interface and not something that uh, a lot of people were paying attention to. And so the more I did and the more we dug in, the more apparent it became that there was an, an enormous amount of climate opportunity that sat with how we managed our land. And so that really has been the, the the journey I've been on over the last 10 years is to try and unpack that. And that sort of brought me right into the middle of the biodiversity agenda, the climate agenda and the food security and water security agendas, which has been a, a fascinating and rich, but, but, uh, but very challenging journey. Fascinating. And I think we're finding that people who are able to look at a problem from different lenses over their career can bring a lot of learnings from different domains. Let's explore this a little more. You know, as you were talking about, you know, the impact that land has on a number of these challenges. One of the things that has has come up, perhaps not so recently, but perhaps more recently to some people, is this idea of nature or the ecosystem providing services to the economy. Can you explain a little more about what that means? 
in our current context, it's easier to talk about everything when we when we sort of bring it down to the the, the kind of dollars and cents. And um, and so we have been depleting nature. We've been depleting ecosystems for for centuries as we've as we've sort of developed in, in some ways all the way back to ten thousand years ago when agriculture first came and we started tilling the soil and became sedentary groups around cities. So the idea of paying for ecosystem services is to start to shed a light on just the incredible value that nature provides to to our economy each and every day, the clean air that we breathe, the clean water that we drink, the food that that we all eat and 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 rely on that that is itself reliant on or 95% of our food is reliant on healthy soils all of that these are ecosystem services that are provided to us for free and so the idea of paying for those ecosystem services is how do we actually start incorporating the cost of those ecosystem services to pay for that the the the, the one that most people have heard of or or connect with is the carbon market so the idea that uh, if we could start rewarding people for managing um land and indeed oceans in a different way to store more carbon to so that we have less emissions of carbon from the land and actually start storing more carbon in the land that can be a a key part of uh, of of a of a functioning carbon market there's also examples of of water markets that are created to pay for either greater higher water quality or 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 quantity and then there's a growing call for biodiversity markets. So how could companies be paying to enhance and create what's now being termed nature positive solutions? So whom do you pay? You don't pay the earth. So how does this work? It, in terms of shifting consciousness, this is about paying the earth for all the extraordinary hard work that does go on. But in terms of creating a market, you clearly create buyers and sellers of any commodity or any service and so in this case what we are trying to uh, to do and what we're starting to see is is let's call them project developers who are working in a particular landscape so let's take the amazon there are there are groups that protect parts of the amazon can we pay them money to protect and and indeed restore parts of the amazon and that might be indigenous communities that are living in the forest and and in many many cases those indigenous communities steward the land and indeed 80% of all the biodiversity that's left on the planet is thought to be in in territories controlled by indigenous peoples so they they're one example of a, a of a, a seller but that can also be a government that might be a local government the state of para or the state of Amazonas in the Amazon may be structuring a program whereby by managing the whole state in a way they can create carbon credits or a national government but in the last few years it's really started to bubble up where private companies are building integrated landscape projects working with communities working with farmers working with different landowners to try and then develop these high quality credits so that's the that's that's where these credits might be coming from and then the buyers are are either in a regulated market so governments either nationally or in some cases locally at a state level california for instance has had a market for many many years they are regulating that the companies or indeed individuals may be responsible for then buying those credits as 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 part of their broader climate action that's sort of how the sort of the market dynamic can work at the simplest level the challenge we have and and one of the reasons carbon markets get such a hard time is that 
is integrity and the integrity is important on both the demand side. So are companies genuinely working with carbon markets or buying carbon credits as a way to really drive accelerated climate action or are they using it as an excuse for inaction? So lots of the criticism is you know, to pick on one sector, oil and gas companies may buy carbon credits, but but without any work to try and transition some of their core oil and gas activities, recognizing that's a very challenging sector to uh, to transition. But nonetheless, it's got to, carbon credits can't be an excuse for inaction. And then on the supply side, there's been lots of examples of poor quality projects that haven't been developed that aren't really what's called additional. They haven't brought an additional benefit to the climate. And so ensuring really high quality, high integrity credits on the supply side is also a critical way of how this market will function and will need to evolve moving forward. And there's lots of positive signs for that that give us a great amount of hope. I'm curious about this last point you made about, call it incrementality. You know, if you protect some part of a rainforest, are you basically saying, I'm avoiding the fact that it might be destroyed, or is it actually adding to the carbon sequestration or, or you know, the other benefits of the of the services that you know you described? So it's a it's a great question, Michael, and and it's a it's it, it's a, it's it's not a, there's not a straightforward answer. But let me give you a couple of sort of pieces. That what many companies are starting to kind of really prioritize is what are called removal credits. So that's where you are, t- you are taking a specific action to restore a forest or to restore a mangrove or seagrass meadow or indeed to restore soils uh, where you can tangibly and very now reliably measure the, 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 the carbon benefit that comes from that specific action. And so companies like that because they, they, can, they can measure exactly what that is. The other side of this is, is credits for so-called avoided deforestation. And that becomes very tricky because what you need then is a baseline to say, well, what was the steady state before the action um, that's generated this credit? And this has been a mechanism that has been argued about for well over a decade in the UN under an acronym called RED, R-E-D-D, Reduced Emissions for Degradation and Deforestation. And and so yes, it's a it's a it's a challenging it's a challenging area for the for the need to agree that methodology and the need to agree the counterfactual of what would have happened were this project or program not to have taken place. And so that's created some 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 challenging areas, but it's also really important as we as we reflect on all of this to to, to understand again the 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 land base absorbs more than a quarter of our total emissions that that we but that the the modern economy puts up into the atmosphere so broadly broadly speaking you know 50 gigatons of co2 equivalent go up into the atmosphere every year a quarter of that goes into our forests and our soils a quarter of it goes into our oceans and the remaining half is what ends up in the atmosphere that drives the concentration up so but none of that the intact forests that are the, the, the best absorbers often of, of that CO2, the, the stewards, whether that's indigenous peoples or governments, don't get any payment for the keeping of those forests intact. So it drives this. It's also driven this 
very deep discord that you see playing out now at the the recent climate cop cop 27 in egypt the biodiversity cop cop 15 up in in canada where it it drives this sort of rift between the global north many countries in the north have depleted nature over many decades in some cases centuries and the the big intact particularly tropical forests and tropical ecosystems that are such great harbors of biodiversity and stores of carbon sit in the global south so this so this discussion about financial mechanisms to support those countries protect these ecosystems is all caught up in that and somehow as a global economy we need to find ways of 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 financially supporting those countries, those communities, those farmers that are doing more to protect and restore their forests. You mentioned dollars and cents or, or pounds and pence. How much is this worth? How much is being invested now? How much needs to be invested? A report we did when I was at the World Economic Forum highlighted that more than half of the global economy, so $44 trillion dollars, of the global economy was mostly or somewhat dependent on nature. Okay, so that that as we start depleting nature, this nature crisis that 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 is now talked about, we're, we're at the sort of cusp of what's called the sixth mass extinction event. So we know all the metrics are in decline. That's what the the negotiators and the governments have been working to try and come up with a new framework for biodiversity. So we know we're at this point of critical decline. We know that as it declines, so many industries, particularly our food sector, but our fashion, many of our building materials, many of indeed you know, flowing into financial services, there's so much interdependence on nature that if we, if we sort of pull out that rug from underneath the global economy, it has, it has enormous consequences. And so the value of what nature provides is, is, is extraordinary. But what many environmentalists many indigenous groups would argue is you you can't you simply can't put a price on that this is also the living planet that we that we all that that we all rely on and so we're in this sort of slight conundrum where capitalism and the 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 the, the rampant growth that we've had which has clearly lifted people out of poverty and created the you know extraordinary wealth so many of us have you know the privilege to uh, uh, to benefit from today, and equally many many do not. But what capitalism has created is 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 remarkable, and yet it's also been what's been the driver of so much nature nature loss and 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 the broader climate crisis. And yet here we are, where capitalism needs to be playing a role to to address the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. But then indigenous groups and and others would also talk about just a, a need for a shift in consciousness. It can't be the same red-toothed capitalism that, that that we've got today. It's got to there's got to be a, a greater shift in terms of we are part we're an integral part of nature. We're, we're not separate from nature. And so our understanding of that requires a shift in how we approach these solutions as well. Yeah, there's certainly an intrinsic value to things like biodiversity or in human health, but at the same time, you know, we pay doctors and nurses and an entire healthcare system, and so there's there's a there's an economy around it as well, and so both things uh, obviously intersect. I, I am curious, uh, you know, as you were saying, you know, capitalism can and should play a role. What what is the role that 
that capitalism can play in, in addressing some of these issues? Well, I think the first thing is putting putting a price on the externalities that, that capitalism, you know, it, it suits some capitalists that we don't put a price on some of the externalities, some of the pollution, some of the carbon emissions, some of the biodiversity loss that, that is inherent in our current economic activity and economic models. So, so pricing that and then creating these the types of markets we've already touched on that, that can actually create economic incentives for entrepreneurs and innovators to come up with solutions that actually start to restore planetary health, I think is is you know one of the best levers we have. It's it's how do we get capitalism to work? And and where I sit now, what I didn't finish off in the sort of career journey I've been on is now coming back into the private sector, I joined Generation Investment Management with a view that this is where the large, this is where capital allocation decisions are made. Uh, asset management, we work with the largest asset owners, the pension funds, the insurance companies, where trillions of dollars sit. You know, and those trillions of dollars are there to ensure future pensions are paid for teachers and for police men and women and for nurses and for, for all of all of us, all workers in certainly in the Western economies and many others. So how do we get that money that's sitting there to work to actually drive solutions and in, in into this? And that's that's really what we're focused on now is how can we find solutions that channel those very large pools of capital to support that. That that's only going to that 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 has to come through capitalist solutions. That has to come through making the market work for you know for nature. The other piece we do in in generation is we're focusing on driving more capital into the hardest to obey industry sectors: the steel sector, the cement sector, the marine, the aviation. Those sectors that that. I think collectively probably represent about 50% of emissions, but haven't had the same level of capital allocation to decarbonize that we've seen with renewables and, and, and passenger electric vehicles. So these are the things that we're now focused on to do that. That that can only come within the economic system that we have. And that's, that's where I choose to focus and invest my own time to try and make a, a small difference to, to those capital allocation decisions. Well, historically, capital allocators have you know funneled capital to places where there's great innovation. Um, and you mentioned these hard to abate sectors. Mm. What are the sorts of innovations that you're seeing in those sectors which give you hope that you know there's there's potential to to really mitigate? I mean, even if I just track some of those innovations over the last twenty years, I think you know it's very easy to take renewable energy for granted in the late nineties when I was first working on renewables, it was far from certain. Solar was still a very niche or niche industry. The cost reductions we've seen in solar PV are one of the extraordinary, alongside the sort of cost reductions in processing you know, power of, of, of obviously computers and and chips, as, as which which has driven so much of the modern technology revolution we've had. But but the, the solar PV story is extraordinary. The wind story is, is similarly impressive. When the UK started innovating to put offshore wind out. You know, people thought offshore wind was just crazy, crazily too expensive to, to sort of deploy. And yet, you know, it drove down sort of by an order of, you know, probably it became a third of the cost within two or three years. And that was innovation that was, yes, there was some technology, but it was business model, it was financial 
and supported by policy. And, and so I think we've got now several examples where when we get the policy frame right, where we get technology aligned and we then get business and, and capital or business model innovation and then capital formation around you know really high quality teams, we can really drive extraordinary things. When I set up a EV program at BP back in the uh, mid two thousands, you know everybody or the vast majority of leader, senior leadership in BP thought it was crazy. They thought there was no way electric vehicles were going to become a kind of threat, and yet here we are, fifteen twenty years later, and and you know EVs are you know are, are growing at an extraordinary uh, extraordinary lick. We then take that electrification, the, the the progress on electrification and the innovation that's occurring around that and look at, well, how else can, where else can we electrify it? We've got to electrify our buses. We've got to transform how we think about public mobility more broadly and make mass transit much more attractive, much more financially interesting to others. And, and electrification and digitization of, of, of that's going to be a key part of that. Electrifying the marine sector is a wickedly complex sector to, to, to decarbonize. Electrification can play a key role there. So that's one of the areas that we're seeing you know, huge amounts of opportunity in. Alternative fuels is, is, a, you know, is an area where there's, again, lots and lots of innovation going on, taking waste fuel streams, municipal solid waste, agricultural waste, forest waste, and converting that into usable fuels at the minute there is little prospect of electrification or batteries operating kind of long distance air travel anytime soon but uh, so, so thinking about sustainable aviation fuels is a is a key way of how we need to be addressing that and then when you move to some of the really hard to abate sectors such as steel hydrogen and the production of green hydrogen to uh, to reduce the steel uh, or to reduce the iron ore rather to to to, to then make the steel has huge benefits. We're also seeing kind of some very interesting kind of low temperature opportunities for extracting iron. So I think there's, there's, there's so much potential to kind of reimagine the, the industrial processes that we've created and to be thinking about them in a far smarter way that that, that gives us lots of hope. And then the other broad area that, that I don't think gets nearly enough attention, but but again, is ripe for more innovation and you know, full of business opportunity is demand reduction or demand destruction, right? I, I think as we look at all the models for kind of the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, and, and sort of where we are, it's been sort of, they, yeah, our economic paradigm has been built on perpetual and endless growth. And yet we're seeing the limits to that. And that's what these you know, great environmental crises are sort of pointing us towards. So thinking about how we can maintain quality of life, how we can maintain and enhance prosperity and the things that we uh, we love from life, but without just perpetually growing more demand for the materials and the energy and the water that that that, that all of these processes require, I think is, is going to be key. And that's that's an area where I think we need to see a lot, lot more investment. And that's so it's not about infringing on kind of quality of, of, of life, but more about actually the quality being kind of how can we drive quality in different ways with different business models to drive that. Right? We don't, I, don't need, I don't need a car. I need to be able to get from A to B on the time and the day that I, I sort of want to do that. And so, yeah, so there's lots and lots to explore there. So um, 
that's the type of thing that we're starting to uh, to see more and more interest in and 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 more and more great entrepreneurs and uh, businesses popping up and just to that last point i think a lot of people have observed you know as you mentioned about your own personal mobility you can continue to see economic growth and decouple that from carbon intensity but you need innovation in order for that to happen so we can still have better quality lives but we just need to do it in a less carbon intensive way i think is what um, and it requires people thinking in more of the sort of this, yeah, there's this horrible phrase of system thinking, but, but yeah, it does require us to sort of just see how all the pieces sort of connect because we've sort of also lived in a world where everybody's got very specialist skills and very specialist areas of expertise, whether that's within a business or within the broader economy. And yet it's the, it's the connections up and down the supply chain. I spent many years working with some of the biggest consumer companies on eliminating deforestation from their supply chains. Well, those supply chains have multiple nodes up and down, right? And then people point the finger at the, well, the traders control so much of this supply chain. So the traders must be the, the linchpin. Well, the traders are representing or working with thousands, in some cases, tens and hundreds of thousands of farmers and producers at the one end of the supply chain. They're working in different political environments in different places and then responding to to, to, to consumer goods companies at uh, at the far end who in turn are responding to consumer sentiment in the supermarket or uh, wherever we're buying those products. So you've got incredible challenges and in how you send signals up and down and, and the solutions will only come through genuinely finding solutions that work for everybody and not lumping all of the problem or all of the cost, particularly in agricultural supply chains, on the shoulders of the farmer that, that is often least well-prepared, you know, least capitalized, least, in some cases, least educated to be able to deal with it. And that's these are sort of how we've got to start finding the solutions in different ways. Let's step back and, and just look at where we are in the world. Uh, you know, we're recording this a little after um, COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, the, the, the climate COP. You know, the, the long-time goal has been to not exceed a 1.5C increase over pre-industrial times. Are we on a track to do that? It's interesting. The 1.5C actually only really became a bigger part of, of the narrative after Paris, after COP21 mm. in 2015. And, and it was the, the small island developing states and some of the more vulnerably situated states that really insisted in return for signing on to the Paris Accords that, that we really become much more ambitious about 1.5 degrees because the difference for them between 1.5 degrees and 2, 2 degrees C, which is actually what was in the Paris text, is 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 the difference between life and death. I mean, it's it's whether, no, it it's it's how many islands, how many islands become unlivable in a two degree world versus a one and a half degree world. We are already in a one point one degree world, and the rate of change has been accelerating, and so it's 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 very easy to be pessimistic that one and a half degrees is out of reach. And indeed, there was a front cover on The Economist, I think during the Sharm, the Sharm el-Sheikh negotiations that said, you know, one and a half degrees is gone. And I, I, don't, I don't buy that. Just climate, which is this division, this new division in generation that we've set up, um, you know, is, is set up on the premise of, of enabling and building a 1.5 degree world. And so I think every year of, 
of inaction or foot dragging that continues, it, it all obviously becomes harder. But I think things are changing and they're changing in, in, in lots of ways. And we've touched on lots of the innovation that is occurring that gives me still great hope. One really important piece to, to emphasize is that I, that I touched on before, but is carbon removal, which is our ability to draw down carbon from the atmosphere. And so our you know, restoring forests, restoring the health of ecosystems around the world. If we do that and do that really well, that's an extraordinary way of drawing down more carbon into our ecosystems and helping both slow the the temperature increases, but, but crucially sort of reduce that atmospheric concentration of CO2. So that's one of the great levers that we have. And so you know, I'm increasingly talking about you know, the need to build a, a planetary restoration industry that is doing that. And the great advantage if we do that working with our ecosystems is that you can bring many other benefits. You can, you know, to start with, let's start talking about the millions of jobs that can cre be created in rural landscapes, many of which have seen, you know, massive urban migration over many, many decades. You know, let's keep more people working on the land in, in well-paid jobs that are restoring our relationship to land. If we're going to do that and create millions of jobs, then we can enhance water security and, and in a shifting climate and indeed with growing populations, water stress becomes a sort of critical flashpoint for so, so many places around the world. And then we can, you know, we can be reversing biodiversity loss because we're creating habitat where species can begin to thrive again. So this to me is one of the great, the great sort of industries that we need to be building together over the next the next decades and indeed beyond the next centuries um and uh, and we're just at the, the we're just at the beginning stages of, of doing that but there's so much opportunity there you've got other opportunities that start linking the biology or the the the, the living world and the technological world so you know there's there's companies now developing sort of algal solutions where they're you know growing great blooms of algae and then burying that algae and that's a carbon removal it doesn't come with many other sort of biodiversity co-benefits but it, it it's it's a, a carbon removal there's other companies doing that with giant kelp in our ocean ecosystems and then looking at how that kelp could be sunk into the deep ocean to sequester and store that carbon away and then of course you've just got pure technological solutions that uh, you know direct air capture where people are starting to suck carbon out of the atmosphere and store that co2 permanently in the subsurface as solutions and if we can get some of these solutions working right and some of them have potentially you know quite significant unintended consequences there's a big push around bioenergy with carbon capture and storage and there's there's lots that could be done there but we've got to be careful not to sort of re reinvent the challenges that the first generation of biofuels created where we have vast swathes of the most productive cropland in the world used to grow you know monocultures that are then feeding our car habit and our uh, our cow habit so uh how do we start optimizing? And that probably is the word for me that you know, comes back again to the system. Landscapes are all complex systems. They're complex social systems and they're complex biological systems. And we've got to get smarter about how do we optimize? How do we make the best choices across a landscape? And we're not going to design that from New York or London or you know Beijing. That's going to be designed in 
in situ in in the landscape with the local stakeholders who understand kind of what the right decisions are there and not imposed by some global often white and often male elite and that's what we've got to sort of get over and start to really empower those decisions to be made locally around how do we optimize and then start linking that up to optimize for the whole i'm curious i'd, I'd love to draw on this this uh, point you're making about optimization um because i think a lot of individuals want to contribute. Mm. And so let's plant a tree or let's change my consumption in my household in, you know, in, the, in the following ways. And at the same time, I think some of what you've called to mind during our discussion here are the places where there are concentrations of opportunity. You know, for instance, you talked about tropical forests as opposed to forests elsewhere where I think you were implying that a lot of the benefit, there are a lot more benefits from a, you know, a, a, a square hectare in one place in the world versus a square hectare of a forest elsewhere. Um, you mentioned some of the concentrations in industries, which are the biggest emitters of carbon, for instance. And yet every company is being, you know, asked about their net zero uh, strategy. How do you think about, you know, what, what's, um, where capital should flow, where effort should flow, where policy should flow, given that there are concentrations of opportunity. It's a great, it's a great question. I've sort of struggled with this in the past and have to constantly check myself. It's like, is, is any sense that I've got, that I've got the best idea or I've got the right idea of how we should optimize, right? And I think one of the things we need to do is sort of get over the sense that any of us can and design and direct kind of exactly how this is going to work. And we've, I think there's, you know, I think our scientists do a fabulous job of actually pointing to kind of where the big opportunities are and whether that's, you know, transitioning steel plants or whether that's for, you know, how and where we restore forests or how we, you know, kind of protect coral reefs or any of these systems. Now, I think we need to rely and trust our scientists as to sort of where those opportunities are. And then, in terms of capital allocation, I think we've got to be realistic about it. it there is an inherent localization dimension to some of that in the sense of, you know, if it's pension fund holders in, in the U.S., they often prefer to have something lower risk that, that would be in the same country versus sort of, you know, supporting a country that might be deemed higher risk, whether it's for currency or other reasons in, in the global south. And so I think there's a sort of a balance between how can we support local opportunities as well as kind of understand where that fits into the to the global whole. And I think for individuals, it's, again, we seem to sort of create these sort of tortured arguments about either or with almost everything today. And, and you know, the reality is we need both and we need it all. But, but so individuals should absolutely do what they can. And I think the greatest thing any of us can do as individuals is actually just try and 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 be a be an example of actually what good could look like. And I think that requires many of us to think, well, do we need to take all of those flights? Do we need to, whether that's for business or for for, for personal, do we need to sort of do all of that travel? Do we need to buy the next car? Do we right? And so just just to sort of be questioning these things ourselves, right? Because now, for those of us who work in this field, we've got to really internalize that and, and be an example of kind of what, what could good look like. And at the same time, 
we, you know, we need to be optimizing the systems. And I think that's where I see business and the finance sector really starting to sort of move and try and, and, and do more. I've had the great privilege to work in NGOs, in you know, the World Bank for a while, in the World Economic Forum, in large corporates, in small corporates, now in the finance sector. And I've worked with governments in many of these places. And, and nobody on their own can find these solutions. And so it's, it's again, it's how, how do we start really linking up and, and, and listening to one another around what we can each contribute. I find it fascinating you know, being in the finance sector now, and but still how little understanding there is of what the finance sector can bring, of how little understanding there is about how institutional capital might flow from governments who are trying to design solutions, but have an inherent unease about the financial system or profiteering. And, and so again, finding ways to translate across sectors, I think is incredibly important. And I think for a long time, I feel I've sort of, I've sort of traversed or meandered through different areas as I look to see how I can have impact. And I start to realize now that perhaps sort of, you know, maybe the only role I can play is just to help to translate a little bit between sectors who often speak different languages, right? People may all be speaking English, but but half the time we're either not hearing or certainly not listening. And so that's that's one of the things that gives me gives me a little bit of hope as well, but would just encourage more people to do that as well. That's great. Well, I loved how you connected the micro with the macro there. If you don't mind, I'd love to do a lightning round of quick questions, quick answers. Please go ahead. What's your favorite source of information about climate? This is not a quick answer. I don't have one source. I but I love just sort of pulling from from uh, from from multiple different sources, and I'm not going to give any one a. Uh, you know, I get frustrated with all of them. What's your favorite species? Hmm. I'm going to say sharks. If you had to pick one geographic region in which to invest for the value of its ecosystem services, what would it be? The Amazon. What's the number one action that corporates could take that would most impact climate and biodiversity? Having really well thought through a net zero nature positive strategies that can, can be implemented and can be followed up. But, but you know, to move from the talk into the action, how to make it actionable. What's the most effective policy intervention you've seen that addresses climate and biodiversity? I think yeah, functioning well-regulated carbon markets and then the feed-in tariffs that, that supported the, the, the renewable revolution. I think yeah, both of those are sort of examples of how policymakers can get the right, can create the right incentives for private sector to that act. What's the most surprising fact about climate and biodiversity you've uncovered over your career? A surprising fact. I think just the sheer breadth of species that, that exist on this planet, the, the, the sort of abundance of life, the, the experiment that, you know, that, that we all take for granted, but the, the, the millions and millions of life forms that, that make life possible here that we are, are blind to and even the wonderful natural history programs that we have sort of that show the big megafauna only touch the sort of tip of the, you know, the tip of the iceberg of that. And uh, it's that understanding that really sort of drives and motivates so much of, uh, of my work today. What worries you most about climate and biodiversity? Ignorance and cold heartedness. What gives you most hope about climate and biodiversity? 
that humans are inherently motivated to do good. And when we slow down, we actually recognize that we care about one another and care about things beyond money. And what's one piece of advice you'd have for listeners of this podcast? Spend more time in nature. Spend time slowing down. Yeah, that that is the most, it's the best healing and also where so many solutions lie, slowing down and spending time in nature. Justin Adams, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Michael. Very nice to talk with you. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.